Hello, I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show, and I'm filling in for the conversation where TYT brings you interviews with political and cultural thought leaders. Joining me now is none other than Thomas Frank. He's a political analyst, historian, journalist, columnist for the for the Salon, former columnist for the Wall Street Journal. You may know him best for his title, his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Thomas, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure to be here. I interviewed you some years ago with your last release, Listen Liberal. And now I have a copy of your book, your newest book, The People, No. And it's dealing with populism and the rise of anti-populism as a means of control in our country. Could you briefly just give the audience a snapshot of what's in this book and why it's important? Yeah, so there's a there's a long populist tradition in this country stretching from the sort of radical farmer movement in the 1890s. These are the guys who coined the term populism mm-hmm. uh, up to uh, say the Bernie Sanders movement in our own time. And you know, with that history is, uh, I trace that history and it's fairly well known. And I go through the different chapters, 1890s, 1930s, you know, the New Deal, the labor movement, uh, the 1960s, the civil rights movement, and then our own time. And what is far more interesting to me, just because it's everywhere you turn in our mass media these days, is anti-populism. Right. The people who use the word populism to mean, you know, basically bigoted, you know, demagoguery, bigotry, that sort of thing, like Donald Trump, you know, right. or Jair Bolsonaro or Marine Le Pen, and yes. I trace the history of that. Form of thought, and that's the really. This is this is very interesting, and nobody's ever written this history before. But you can trace that back to the 1890s, as well, and it begins as a hysterical reaction against the reform movements of the 1890s, and describing them as as you know anarchic, and there it's the end of you know the the rule by the rightful ruling class. You know these are the lower orders rising up when they have no business rising up, and that basically continues through you know different iterations right up to our own day. Yeah, and something interesting that you said there, and that you said in the book. It's now this conflation with populism. It's it's an anti-populist sentiment that wraps itself in the name of populism. You mentioned Marie Le Pen in France. You mentioned Donald Trump. You mentioned all of the demagogues that we see that are being labeled as anti as populist. Yeah. But in terms of their policies, what yeah. they actually enact is clearly anti-populist. Yeah. Would you, oh, would you argue that this is like this is the new this their new Machiavellian method of keeping from the people is by labeling the people who are actually anti-populist as populist. Yes, and there it's a kind of it's a kind of fraud, and they they're very good at it, and <clears throat> you know they've been doing this for quite a while. This is what my sort of entire career as a writer has been about is documenting this sort of fraud, this sort of fake populism going from. I mean, Richard Nixon really began it. He took his cues from George Wallace, who is a classic Southern demagogue, yeah. and you know goes right up through Ronald Reagan, Newt Gingrich, the the Bush family, on and on. Donald Trump is not is by no means you know this this innovator in this. I mean, he's more outrageous than the others, but he didn't invent it. If there's any one human who you can point to as sort of the genius behind all this, it's Pat Buchanan, who was a speech, a speechwriter for Nixon, actually came up with the phrase, the silent majority, and then invented the sort of America first politics that then Trump sort of swiped from him. Right, right. but even in that America first 
uh, politics of uh, Pat Buchanan, right? Um, one thing that you've been really good at is exposing the the underbelly of that rhetoric, right? That rhetoric is basically just there as a uh, kind of a bait and switch. Um, but let's let's shift gears in terms of like the response. Oh yeah, from, can I can I the, can yeah, I the funniest example? It's in the news right now. So one of the things that was important to the original populists was to take America off the gold standard, okay? For reasons that are complicated, but that was for for decades and decades and decades of famous progressive cause. That was a cause for people like you and me. Well, here's Donald Trump, you know, who's who got himself elected president by by reaching out to disaffected working people within all these dog whistles, you know, all, all that stuff. The woman that he is now nominating to the Federal Reserve wants to put us back on the gold standard. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Right, it's right. Complete inversion. Right. So so Part of the reason I think Republicans are so capable, or Republicans are capable of getting away with this, is that I feel like that there's really no meaningful opposition in terms of clarity, in terms of in terms of exposing this methodology. In fact, you talk about in the book that 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 the media, as well as some Democrats, actually use this same methodology of labeling things that are clearly anti-populist, labeling it populist. Mm-hmm. As a way of attacking someone else, but still not bringing anything that's actual, anything that's beneficial for the working class. So, is it because Democrats are complicit with this strategy of demagoguing against populism that Republicans are able to get away with this bait and switch all the time? Absolutely. And I mean, to put it in in very simple terms, the Democratic Party decided basically this is the big transition in the Democratic Party in the 1960s and 70s. They decided that they didn't want to be a populist party anymore. They did not want to be a party that was about bringing together a grand coalition of working people from different races and different walks of life and enacting reform in that way. No, they wanted to be a party of meritocracy, a party of technocrats, where the decisions are made by highly educated people sitting around a big mahogany table in Washington DC, that's their model. You and I are invited to vote for them. They like they like having us vote vote for them. You know that's great. But no, it's not about us, and it's not about building a mass movement. In fact, they are suspicious of and hostile to mass movements. And because of that, they have opened themselves up. And you you know this is I mean just look at the way they talk. I mean it's 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 in your face all the time. And they have made themselves totally vulnerable to the kind of right wing attack perfected by people like Pat Buchanan, Donald Trump. Steve Bannon, Richard Nixon, on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. As I was reading through your book, I see you you have like a, a well documented history. You said that you took it from like 1891 all the way to to Donald Trump, and and you see the ebbs and the flows. But you also see something that stood out to me was um, the staunch opposition, the well funded opposition, the consistent opposition to the people. Right, being funded by corporations, being funded by the oligarchs throughout history. What are our odds? Like how you know? I know that that's a big question. I know it's kind of like, but it's just something that's really bothering me these days. Like we have the odds stack against us. What do you think our chances are of ever winning? And if we can win, how do we get there? And I know, and and it's it's awfully depressing in this. You know, I, when I wrote this book, it still looked like Bernie Sanders might capture the Democratic nomination this year. When I turned it in, you know, I thought that I thought there was a really good chance of that happening. But let me let me just say this. 
one of the things that is really remarkable all through the history of populism from these like radical farmers in the 1890s through the labor movement in the 30s to through the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And by the way, John Lewis is one of the characters yeah. in this book. He gets, I, I quote some SNCC, his, the movement that he was a leader of is had this kind of extraordinary trust and faith in ordinary people. And that's what I'm getting at, the optimism of these guys. Think about a, like a guy like Bernie Sanders, the kind of optimism it takes to get up in the morning and go and, and fight that fight every single day against incredible odds. Populism is incredibly optimistic and not just about ordinary people, but about this country too. And you know, you have to you have to keep that you have to keep that feeling in your heart if you're going to continue this struggle. You have to because the odds against us are tremendous. When you read this book, you'll see that the way they destroyed populism in the 1890s is just it's an extraordinary tale and you know it's it's completely forgotten, so I dug it up, dusted it off and told it one more time. It's a fantastic story. We also look, we win from time to time. Look yes. at Franklin Roosevelt. They yeah. did the same thing to him. They came together in the most extraordinary way against him. Money, academics, journalism, and he beat them. He beat them badly. Right. We we can do it again, right? Right. Uh, from your book, what would be the the definition, the working definition that we as progressives, uh, people who fight for liberation, what should be the definition that we use in reaction to all of the um, the propaganda around the term populist? First of all, you have to remember where that propaganda comes from. It's always in service of rationalizing the power of the powerful. It was, you know, it comes from a group of academics in the 1950s who who flipped the meaning of the word populism because they needed a shorthand term to describe the opposite of themselves. You know, the, the idea was that merit that, that managerial sort of geniuses, you know, people with MBAs and stuff like that would, would run American corporations and the government and the Pentagon from here on. And they needed a word to describe what they were displacing. And what they were displacing was mass democracy. They said, well, there's no longer, we don't need that in America anymore because we now have these experts. Just remember that every time you hear it. What populism meant before that was a transracial movement of working people to reform capitalism. That's what it meant. It was really simple. And that is a powerful, powerful thing, however they slander it. Yeah, Thomas Frank, he is the author of The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. He's also the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and also the author of Listen Liberal. Thanks so much for joining me today. The pleasure was all mine. Welcome back, I'm Benjamin Dixon filling in for the conversation. Joining me now is Mary Ziegler. She is the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the constitution. She teaches courses in torts, family law, employment, and constitutional law. And she has a new book out called Abortion in America, a legal history of Roe v. Wade to the present. Mary, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. 
Um, I've had a chance to dig into your book and and just kind of dig into the conversations that you've been having about this topic. And one of the things that struck me is that perhaps we on the left progressives, we may be oversimplifying the uh, the abortion issue in terms of uh, how the decision would be made uh, if this ever comes back up before the Supreme Court. Uh, could you expand on how we should view, how should we view as progressives or just people in general, the abortion argument? Well, I think one of the things that's probably striking if people were following the Supreme Court's latest big abortion decision, the Louisiana case June Medical versus Russo, I think a lot of progressives and a lot of people in general were probably confused by what the court was actually talking about. There's very little conversation about a right to choose or about equality for women or any of the stuff that progressives usually think about when they think about abortion. Instead, the court really seems to be kind of in the weeds talking about issues like what is abortion in Louisiana different from Texas or what does precedent mean? And all of that is by design. The anti-abortion movement really since the 1970s figured out that talking about a right to life or a right to choose was a losing proposition for conservatives. And that it instead made much more sense to focus on what abortion in America was really like. And even to argue that abortion was actually bad for women and pregnant people, which has been a strategy that's been very effective for conservatives for decades, really since the Hyde Amendment and beyond. And you actually wrote an opinion for Market Watch on that recent decision. You said that the Supreme Court ruling in on the Louisiana abortion case wasn't a big win for pro-choice advocates after all. Could you help us to understand that? Yeah, well, I think John Roberts kind of pulled a fast one on progressives in some ways. He, of course, joined his more liberal colleagues in striking down the Louisiana law. And he did so by writing this kind of almost love song to precedent, right, which we all have sort of learned to equate with Roe v. Wade. When Susan Collins had her sort of famous tete-a-tete with Brett Kavanaugh, where he reassured her, um, all they were talking about was precedent, which was code for Roe v. Wade. But when you dig into what Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts did in this June medical case, he actually effectively partially overruled precedent to get to the result he wanted. And he did it in a way that rolled back protection for abortion rights in future cases. Um, And we already know this because he sent back two big wins for abortion rights to a lower court to revisit with his lower, less protective standard in place. So going forward, we don't know how much exactly the court is going to do when it comes back to scaling back abortion rights, but we know they're gonna be less protected than they were before this decision. It's interesting because I was one of the people who celebrated John Roberts and felt like, wow, maybe perhaps he isn't the the extremist that we painted him to be over the years. I remember and recall back to his appointment during the Bush administration thinking that, well, there goes the court. But perhaps I think one of the things that I've heard that I've heard many people argue is that he's really in the position of trying to protect the institution itself and perhaps his reputation. I think maybe he's hedging and thinking that that America will survive and that if the history of the future looks back on him, he would like to be viewed more than just as a conservative apparatchik. What would you say to that? I think that's absolutely right. I think John Roberts, and this is probably especially true when it comes to abortion, but it's true with a lot of things concerning our democracy. He's afraid of damaging his reputation and he's also afraid of a popular backlash and a backlash would be really likely, in fact, if the court overruled Roe in a very clear way, because we've seen lots of polls suggesting that most people don't want Roe to be overturned. And the other thing Roberts is other than concerned with the court's reputation is he's very intelligent and cunning. And so 
I think if progressives are worried about abortion rights, you have to really watch him because he might be rolling back abortion rights in a stealthy way that's less obvious for people and less likely to trigger a backlash. But I think to some degree, I think his concern with the court's reputation and his own legacy is sincere and that might act as some kind of um, protection for Roe and other precedents going forward. So the moral of the story is don't get too excited about what seems to be <laughs> a progressive leaning now John Roberts because he has a lot more up his sleeve. Absolutely, and read between the lines. I think John Roberts writes opinions that are technical and hard to read. And so often the kind of headline will be one that progressives feel good about and the details will not be. And so sometimes if you're kind of wanting to figure out what John Roberts is doing, you might need to you know, read a couple op-eds or talk to a couple experts before you get to the really nitty gritty of what happened. You know, in your book, you start discussing how there's a lot of focus on the Supreme Court when it comes to the issue of Roe versus Wade or abortion in general, not just Roe versus Wade. How would you separate, how should we look at abortion outside of the context of the Supreme Court in terms of the right to abortions and the fight for or against abortions? Well, I think probably the biggest mistake progressives have made is to focus too much on national politics in general. So. The big story, if you kind of go back several decades, has been um, the really complete capture by conservatives of state legislatures and an explosion in abortion restrictions following the Tea Party wave in 2010. Um, and part of that was in some ways because progressives didn't care as much about state legislatures and weren't investing as much money and time in state legislatures. And so on a lot of issues, that's true with you know voting and other things too, there's relevance relevant issues unfolding at the state level all the time. And so I think it's easy to pay and important of course to pay attention to the kind of big ticket sexy races like the race for the White House or the race to control the Senate. But when you're thinking about some of these really core issues like abortion, a lot of what matters is happening at the state level. The other thing I think probably is just we often tend to think about American abortion politics is being dysfunctional. It's one of many areas where if you look over, for example, at Europe, they're just not having the same kind of fights we are. And a lot of that gets pinned on the Supreme Court because our abortion rights came to us through a judicial decision rather than through a democratic outcome. I think if you dig into why the polarization got so bad, um, and how we got to a point where we can't even agree on the facts anymore. It has to do with a lot more than the Supreme Court. So some of it is just sort of realizing that there's a lot of blame on a lot of people's shoulders, not just on you know the five to seven people who are giving us these Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, uh, with the time we have left, I, you, it's a perfect segue into where I usually do my work, which is with the uh, evangelical right, uh, the moral majority around the Jerry Falwell era. Uh, in the, the podcast that you had about this conversation with Georgia State uh, University podcast, um, it came up that evangelicals and perhaps even some Catholics originally were not even opposed to abortion. Jerry Falwell himself was not directly willing to get involved with abortions, but somehow it evolved into being like the number one culture war issue, particularly for evangelicals and a lot of anti-abortion Catholics. Could you speak in, uh, on that specifically in terms of what you just said about how there's a lot more connected to this fight and to the struggle and the inability to discuss facts uh, because of the polarization of the issue? Yeah, well, one of the biggest distinctions, obviously Roe v. Wade is part of the problem in the sense that 
Roe v. Wade gave conservatives like a single bullseye to aim at. But the other thing that happened, of course, is that abortion in America is a part political party issue. And it's really hard for me, for one, to imagine Donald Trump being president without the abortion issue. There were many abortion opponents who did not like Donald Trump, did not trust Donald Trump, thought Donald Trump was a morally questionable person, and yet voted for him because they wanted the chance to control the Supreme Court and overturn Roe. And so I think um, political parties in America make our abortion politics more dysfunctional. Um, and they've, in part, I think, rallied conservative evangelicals and Catholics to make abortion more of a political issue and to tap into views that evangelicals and some conservative Catholics have about related issues, whether that's contraception or the roles of women outside the home. Yeah. Some of the language that's used in um, uh, when they talk about. Uh, uh, picking a judicial pick or a judicial nominee, um, you pointed out is the language is against judicial activism. And that anytime we hear that, that really is code word for abortion slash Roe versus Wade. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well in the 80s, Ronald Reagan realized that there were some Republicans who were uncomfortable with an explicit pledge to uh, reverse Roe v. Wade or nominate pro-life judges. And so judicial activism was a convenient way to rally um, both pro-lifers who wanted that commitment and other Republicans who were either uncomfortable with it or wanted some kind of abstract commitment to the rule of law. One of the striking things about that, of course, is that on Monday, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri actually warned President Trump that conservatives wouldn't be voting for him unless he could explicitly guarantee judges who would no longer claim to be neutral, right, but who would vow to overturn Roe v. Wade. So we're seeing on the right a movement toward more and more explicitly and obviously strong promises to get rid of Roe v. Wade. So that that's moving, I think, even further along the continuum in a conservative direction. What is the pathway, if any, towards um, towards the culmination of this fight, right? What, what, I, I understand the complexity and the length, and this is going to take some time. But in terms of our side, in terms of people who are fighting for a woman's right to choose, is there a way that we should change our language, our understanding of the issue, the way we communicate about it, the way we even organize around it? Is there anything that we can do to help expedite this fight or at least get the odds in our favor? Well, I think probably there's nothing, the things that I think strike me as the most important is focusing on poorer women. Um, if you look at progressive organizing for a long time is focused on legality, not on access. Whereas in reality, women with money and pregnant people with money have always had an easier time accessing abortion regardless of what the law says. The other thing I think that progressives can do that's really important is to focus on the issues that tend to lead more people to wanting or seeking abortion, whether that's access to sex education or adequate birth control or even adequate maternal health outcomes or freedom from pregnancy discrimination at work. Um, the abortion rate is going down and that doesn't have to be a bad thing if progressives are helping more people decide when they wanna have children when they're ready. Mary Ziegler is a Stern Weaver Miller professor at Florida State University College of Law. Her book is Abortion in America, a legal history, Roe versus Wade to the present. Thanks so much for joining us, Mary. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us for the conversation. I've enjoyed filling in. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. I will see you next time.